This is the Civil Discourse Podcast. I am Kevin Prendeville, and together we will explore the same topic as covered in the video program, but we'll take an extended look and an effort to spark a civil discourse. Well, as much as this is a serious topic for this series that we're doing on civil discourse, which was started a number of weeks ago, for those who don't remember, about really the listless kind of lost feeling that seems to have permeated the millennial generation for sure, but perhaps to some extent Generation Z as well, although time will tell with them and obviously the generation after them, whatever we dub them, I believe there is hope, but by the same token, we don't want a lost generation, and it's more and more becoming clear that the millennials may fall into this trap. And I think it really started, or I, I will claim that it started all the way back in 2008, of all places. Now, some of us might be too young to even remember that unfortunate year. It was the last year of George Bush's presidency, and his popularity had plummeted after the failure of the conflicts in the Middle East to resolve themselves, and I believe really that that was a symptom of the idea that Islamic culture at that time would have been ready for a democracy. Now, the Arab Spring Revolt just a couple of years later may prove me wrong on that, but the failure, I think, in the Middle East was not in the military strategy or success, but in the implementation afterwards to, much like what we attempted in Germany after World War I, to establish a democracy and a culture that simply wasn't used to it and Franklin didn't really want it. But in addition to Bush's failure in the Middle East, the last year of his presidency, very close to the election that was coming up in October, the stock market had its worst downturn really since the Great Depression, and it's been dubbed the Great Recession. Take from what you will from the name, not real creative, but it's a polite way of saying many people lost their homes. The unfortunate effect, in addition to that, people lost jobs, livelihoods were, were crushed, people who were making millions suddenly made nothing, and it was totally out of their control. Now, we did have an overinflated real estate market. We had, if you remember, the great boom of flipping homes, and that was the way that it, we were preached to, to to get rich. You would buy, you would find some, you know, horrible home that had been neglected, or you know, an older home, and you could tear it down and build another one, and then sell that property and make, you know, what were they advertising, two hundred percent, you know, that kind of stuff. I'm sure many people still make money at that. Many people still do well at that. But there are a lot of people who 
by doing that were inflating the housing market to where the market was naturally going to have a correction. The market doesn't lie. And so the true value of the homes wasn't what was being sold. And that created a situation in which the inevitable was that the prices on houses were coming down and, and mortgages don't adjust with that decrease. And as a result, many people ended up paying a, uh, a mortgage on a home that simply wasn't worth what the value was that they were paying. The bank didn't want to lose money, so the bank wasn't going to allow them to refinance for what it was actually worth. They'll allow you to do that, of course, if the value goes up, but that's another topic for another day. The other unfortunate side effect was in the 1990s, during the Clinton administration, there was a push mainly from academic circles who believed that it was racist that banks were not lending out the same amount of loans to uh, black people and African Americans that they were to whites. There was a number of statistics about it. And they wanted to change the lending laws because they said it was too much like redlining, which is what happened uh, in the 50s where banks did legitimately try to prevent black people from owning homes even if they could afford it. Now that's silly. And so when we accuse banks of redlining today, it obviously carries a lot of weight and uh, racial prejudice, which is... Unfortunately, part of the uniquely a part of U.S. history, but it, it in all forms it's it's ugly, it's irrational, and frankly, I think it means if, if someone buys into race theory, I think it really means that they simply have a low IQ and an inability to comprehend, in many cases, their own failure in life. But I digress. The result was not what was intended. What happened essentially was that banks now were essentially forced to give out uh, sub-prime uh, lending uh, markets where the banks would give loans to people who they essentially knew they couldn't pay those back, but they'd give them out anyways. And now the bank doesn't have all that money that they have loaned out sitting around. Every dollar that is in the banking system is loaned out 8 to 18 times. So they loan out $8 for every one that they actually have. That's And that's on the minimum. So you can imagine how this problem began to compound pound itself to where the market tanks, people already couldn't afford the home they were in, then the market goes kaput, they lose their job and their ability to pay for it, and their house gets repossessed. Well, what happened because of that? Well, it was around election time, and so naturally, well, we don't want the, the Republican guy who gets blamed for all of this. George Bush was laid on his feet. It happened under his watch, and that's how it goes. Uh, there's a famous saying that politicians cannot make the rains fall from the sky or the crops grow in the day, but they'll certainly take the credit for it. And, and, and that in many cases, the opposite is true, where if something bad happens on a politician's watch, even if it's not his fault, it gets laid at his feet. 
or her. But again, I digress. So this led to a situation where it was nearly impossible for a Republican to get reelected. It, it was not going to happen. And the Democrats ran a, name, a guy by the name of Barack Obama. And he was really uh, a great orator. He had the ability to connect with the average American and, uh, in, in many cases, and not just because of his skin color, with the, uh, with, with the black voters. And that may have created a false sense when the Democrats began to think that they owned the, the, that market when really the popularity was because of Obama himself, who was able to reassure people who had lost their possessions that he was going to fix the problem. So the solution to this widespread economic downturn was to reinflate the market. This was a, a huge display of Keynesian economics, where essentially the idea from the government was, well, well, we'll raise taxes, and by this tax increase, we will give money to people to just go spend, just go spend it in the economy. This will jumpstart the economy, which will then... Uh, kickstart the job market, which hopefully will then reopen the real estate market. But many people who were struggling for bills and needed that money to survive spent it more on utilities and putting it back right into the banking system if they had loans and outstanding debt than they did actually spending it back into the economy. The other solution, again, this goes back to Keynesian economics. The other solution was to reinflate the market, reinflate the bubble. And this was done by giving huge corporate bailouts to GM, notoriously, uh, other larger banks that were too big to fail, quote unquote, even though the market determined that they should fail, largely due to their lending practices. And this stabilizes the free fall of a economic downturn in terms of it's not going to create a bank run, which happened, uh, nearly happened in the, in the late 20s, early 30s during the Great Depression. It jumpstarts, it, it does not jumpstart the economy. It does, however, mitigate the effects. However, on the, on the other side, what we've really seen under the last years of President Obama, and part of the reason why, why Donald Trump's election happened, was the fact that the market on the other side slows down simply because, again, the values aren't real. The growth is essentially fake. That, that the market doesn't determine the growth that is occurring, but because of the injection of government money, growth is bound to happen. Just it, it's, it's, almost, it's, a, it's a fake rate, and with the added restrictions that were placed on private companies during the Obama administration and increased taxation, companies were not as free to 
reinvest in themselves, create more jobs, and again, reopen the real estate market, which really is the key to any burgeoning economy is to, is to reopen the real estate market. Now, we're at a point now in the stock market where it has improved un under Trump, but it's almost fake in the sense that there are essentially three companies that drive the market. Amazon, Netflix, and Google. Should, for some reason, any of these things falter, we could see a huge downturn in the, in the overall point that the stock market has accumulated under Trump. That could snowball into creating, essentially bursting the bubble that the Obama administration reinflated and creating a freefall that was greater than 2008. Now, this alone is terrible. Think about how we're taught. You see, in the, also in the 90s, there was a great effort put in by many of the uh, academics who were coming up. They had grown up uh, during the 60s and 70s and were heavily influenced by Marxist ideology, uh, Eastern mysticism, and really wanted to do away with a lot of the Western thought and ideology that had created free markets, that had created the Constitution and many of the great political advances over the centuries. Because in many cases, they go against the basic tenets of, of Marxism. And once these academics were able to seize power, though that language may be uh, too harsh. I don't mean to see to sound as as if it was a coup or something like that. Uh, it was a, a natural progression where the older professors uh, died or were retired, and then younger ones who were taught more radical beliefs were appointed. So they began teaching history in the Howard's Inn viewpoint or just essentially America has done all these evil things and everything bad in the world is America's fault. Or they begin teaching them in from a Marxist viewpoint where power struggles and the acquisition of power is basically the entire point of history. That the conquistadors came over because they wanted to expand the power of their own government and their own beliefs. And they force themselves on the natives because they're inherently evil men. Now, I'm not defending the, the, the conquistadors here, but we have to take them at face value when they write that they're there for God, glory, and gold. They were in it for themselves personally. They believed what they were doing was in service of God and the church. And they wanted money. It had nothing to do with power. It had nothing to do with creating this power structure or hierarchy 
that the Marxists claim that everything is based on. But this is how the millennial generation began to understand their own history, that the U.S. was created to enforce these power structures, that the U.S. was created in order to establish dominance over a native population. And this just simply isn't the case. If you read the founders, and of course they weren't perfect, you know, we know that Washington owned slaves, and we know that Jefferson owned slaves, and we know the bad side of them. I'm not saying that they are perfect, but their political beliefs created a country which not only rescued the world twice over, but showed what can happen when you let men and women exercise their free will. This is not what we're taught. We can see this acted out with the rise of Antifa. We can see this acted out with the utter hatred on the left for people on the right because they think that they're trying to enforce these power structures. We can see this when anti-abortion activists are punched because they are hating women, even though they have solid theological grounding for their beliefs. And now, as more research is being done, solid scientific evidence on their side. Yet the idea is that they're creating some sort of power structure to keep women down. That's a clearly a Marxist viewpoint. Now, this is just me ranting if it means nothing for the future. So what does it mean for the future? What does the cause for 2008, the effects of 2008 and the stock market now have to do with the political issues that we're facing. Well, people who already feel dispossessed, the millennials now, largely due to student debt, have no money. They've been taught a Marxist viewpoint of the world. Their aim is a Marxist utopia, not the continuation of the United States and her principles. Should they be given credence to rise up via an economic downturn, which has happened in the past, just have to look at Germany, just have to look at Russia, even China for that matter, and the power vacuum left by an economic downturn, authoritarianism, and now the only... Real authoritarian ideology that's left is Marxism. What do we think is going to happen? What's the obvious thing that's going to happen? Emboldened by their own beliefs and confirmed by what they see in the world, namely this fantastic economic downturn, they will feel compelled. to fight the system, quote-unquote. Now, I love America. I love what we stand for. I love this country, and I love her beliefs. Those poor souls trapped in Cuba who swim miles just to reach her shores. They love her beliefs. They love her ideology. They love what we stand for. 
the people born in the ghettos who make millions, millions, even billions. They love her beliefs, her ideology, what she stands for. The Indian immigrants, the, 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 the female Indian who is, who is nothing more than essentially a baby-making machine and stuck in a caste system in a far-off place who comes over and creates a middle-class life for herself, her family. She loves our beliefs. She loves what we stand for. She loves our borders. She loves our ideology. Are we willing to let that go? And all of this can be remedied by teaching history right, making sure that we ourselves know our own history. And that's an easy enough solution. Pick up a book. Know some basic geography. That's not difficult. We can turn the tide. We just gotta read. We can save the world. We just gotta read. And we gotta read the right people. We gotta read people who understand Marxism for what it is, which is authoritarianism and just the bitterness of man. No problem with reading the Bible. No problem with reading a history book. No problem with loving America. But the only way we're going to love America is the only way we're going to love Jesus Christ, and that's to read the books about him. But it's a personal experience. And I can tell you from personal experience how liberating it is. I'm not here to tell you what to do. I'm just here to warn you what I can see clear as day. And I'd love to help. This is the best way I know how right now. Of course, the next way is to avoid the high taxation that's coming down the road and is inevitable. But we're still working on that book. In the meantime, this has been the Civil Discourse Podcast. We are talking about the lost generation. And can we prevent it? I'm Kevin Prendeville. You've been listening to the Civil Discourse Podcast.